Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I'm Blake Dean, here with my co-host, the Reverend Aaron Monez, and today we are excited to give you the second part of our interview with author and theologian, Dr. Cynthia Westfall. If you missed our last episode, stop listening to this one and go back. This is part two of our conversation. As you know, if you listen to part one, Dr. Westfall is an assistant professor of New Testament at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of a few books. The one we're discussing today is Paul and Gender. Erin, what is the second part of this conversation going to give to our listeners? Yes. So we asked Dr. Westfall to really drill down on several of the tricky passages that are often weaponized against women, both in the church and the home, uh, that we find in the writings of Paul. And her being a Pauline expert, we are getting so much good stuff out of this. And so for part two, she really focuses in on some tricky passages from 1 Corinthians. Um, This is where we're going to see um, men and women uh, in church. Uh, It's the passages about uh, prophesying and head coverings and length of hair. Um, We're also going to continue talking about the creation narrative that's found in there. Um, But she's also going to touch on a really important passage in Galatians, um, the neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. um, Male nor female. Yes. And give us some great information about how to think about these passages and to realize that the uh, scripture that we were taught uh, as we said in the first episode, the scripture we were taught might not actually be the scripture that was given. And because she is such an amazing expert, she's going to bring these back to us and um, hopefully give us some good information that our listeners can use if they're confronted in their churches with these passages and situations, especially if they're being used to diminish women in any way. Enjoy, Dr. West. Here we go. Yeah, I wonder if I could throw, maybe not even particularly about the text, but just a response that I often receive about maybe this text or other gender passages that are related to 1 Timothy 2, which is, well, Adam was formed first, then Eve, therefore, in the order of creation represents the order of authority um, surrounding us in our churches and in our marriages. I wonder if you could respond really briefly to anyone who maybe thinks that because of first timothy so the first thing i want to say about about this and now we're now we're moving into a you know uh kind of a galatians 328 discussion too is that we are taking passages that paul wrote and applying them often to things that they were not meant to be applied to and then we're negating it so that's nonsense we um, automatically look at first timothy 2 or say galatians 328 and we say well what does this say about the relationship in the home the church and society and then we leap to society and ignore the other two or we leap to the home (laughs) (laughs) and we, we act like what's addressed to the church is supposed to change society and the culture. Well, Paul had no authority over the Greco-Roman culture or society. He couldn't say, okay, slaves, you're all set free. I said so. Well, uh, he would be crucified (laughs) for an order. And and really seeing it about women wouldn't fare much better. But what, so what he, and he wasn't talking about the home because uh, in spite of the fact that we think the home is under the domain of, of the church, 
I, I assure you, the Greco-Roman home was under the domain of the Greco-Roman culture. And particularly since we were seeing many, many circumstances in which women were coming to faith and then living as people of faith in a Greco-Roman household. And so he couldn't address a household and say, okay, everybody at home, everything changes for you. He could, he could speak to the believers within the household and how they were going to function. He could not change the structure or reinforce the structure or do anything with how the Greco-Roman household was functioning. He was always talking about the church. He was always addressing the church. And so uh, in Galatians 3.28, was this the Magna Carta for humanity? I'm sorry. I would like to, I would like to think so, but I think it is when you change your hearts in your relationship in the church, and then you actually apply the church in relationships to each other, you ought to kind of figure that what's addressed to the church ought to work out in, in your relationships, at least, and in you being salt to the earth and the culture and society. So I think that um, the relationships in the church ought to inform, and well, we say even now, we say if we're in a democracy or a democratic republic and we have power and the government resides in the people, then we should bring those relationships uh, in to, to our influence as, as part of the people who govern. And so, so what I would say, yes, it's, it's relevant, but you got to recognize what Paul was speaking to and where he was speaking to it. Now, I think I've lost track of the question you were answering in my qualification that we need to understand that Paul had authority and was taking authority over the church, but he was not doing it over the home, except for in terms of how people come out of the church and then function in the home or how they come out of the church and then function in a pagan culture. Yeah, so um, I think I hear in many uh, kind of Christian spaces the really simple, simplistic argument, which is the male was formed first and then the woman. And so that informs the way that authority is passed down. Male ah. is prime. Uh, male has authority and the women woman came after. It's a fairly simplistic argument, but I was just wondering how you would If it weren't for Jesus Christ, that might have worked out. Hey! <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yes, because so Galatia, in Galatians, he talks about uh, the fact that when you were baptized, you were clothed with Christ. And, mm -hmm. and he said, and it doesn't matter who you were, you could be, you could be a different races, you could be um, different social status, you could be uh, male or female, but you put on Christ like a garment, mm -hmm. and that becomes what you, uh, what you call in social identity theory, your salient identity. When you walk into a church, you are clothed with Christ. So for the Gentile male, um, Paul goes to the wall for the Gentile male, and he says, you know what, you know, you're uncircumcised. And Jews, Jews, believing Jews in the church want to think if you're uncircumcised, you can't belong to the people of God because that's been the rule since Abraham, has it not? You, you must be circumcised. And so this entry requirement became this big thing. And so he's explaining, no, you don't need to be circumcised. In Romans, he talks about circumcision being a circumcision of the heart. And he goes, you know what? You could, you could be uncircumcised, but really circumcised. And you could be circumcised and uncircumcised. And, and, and so he's already been, he's been talking about this. But in Galatians, which I, he, I think he wrote much earlier than Romans, but he's going on about the same thing. Your circumcision 
does it matter? You can represent Christ and say, how can, a, how can a, a man who's not circumcised represent Christ? And I would suggest this was a, this was a much bigger issue than a woman being disqualified for, uh, for representing Christ because of her sexual organs, because at least within this paradigm, women could just kind of, yep, I'm just going to become a believer. We're all good. We're all good. You know, and, and she gets baptized and, you know, no cutting off of important parts. You know? <laughs> No, no weeks right. of recovery. You know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and she much, just waltzed in, and she sick. she became and, and she became a full member. Now the, the the contention is what it means to be a full member. But she could walk in and become a full member, not an uncircumcised male. And Paul's saying, you know what? Your male body parts are not an issue here, because you put on Christ, and then you know all the things that Christ is, and all the benefits of Christ come to you. You are all heirs, Jews and Greeks, uh, slave and free, male and female, and we can extend that list. I mean, however you wanna slice or dice it, everyone has put on Christ, and at the point that they put on Christ, everybody has primogenitor. Read mm. the passage. Do you want me to read that passage? There's no question. No yeah, question that it is talking about primogenitor. It says, so in Christ, I'm, I'm reading from the TNIV um, because that's, that's just what I got here at this time. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. Actually, when I um, translate that, I think it would be um, best to say you're all children of God and all heirs as firstborn sons because he actually is playing on, he says you're guioi. That is your your sons of God. If you say it in the translation, your sons of God, and you go, oh, women are left out. But this is what's great about this passage is you can't leave women out. You can't. You should not translate it in such a way that it would be confusing. Right. But as it, it's going to develop here, you're going to see when he does say we are, he kind of means we are, <laughs> but not in a way that excludes women. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Okay, wait for it. <laughs> if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. That's a big one for the Gentiles, right? And, and, and heirs, a big one for the slaves and women, according to the promise. What I, what I am saying is that as long as heirs are underage, they are no different from slaves. Ooh. Although they own the whole estate. That is firstborn son who owns the whole estate, right? In right. The culture. Right. They are, and it talks about them being subject to guardians. God sent a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive our adoption to to what? Let's call it sonship and call it primogenitor sonship. Uh, when he talks about heirs, about all of these groups being heirs in Christ, it is a primogenitor status that is being conferred upon all believers. There is no primogenitor but Jesus Christ, ultimately. He's the firstborn, and yeah. we are all firstborn through him. Yes, I, I appreciate also that distinction too, because uh, yes, sometimes the uh, the use of sons should be sons and daughters, but then sometimes it's sons, like in this case, it is trying to make a very explicit statement about that status 
as it would have been interpreted by the first century uh, Jewish people. And so like that's that I, I appreciate that because for again, some of our listeners who are just learning a lot of scholarship as they're listening to this, um, that is uh, that is one of those places where it's like, no, we need to really pay attention to this because that's the point. That's the point is that that primogeniture, that that firstborn and all that comes with that sonship so um and so, yeah, nonsense just... to overinterpret to overinterpret this passage and never does it say anything about primogenitor in this in this narrative in first timothy 2 never it, they're just over and, and and male and female i mean we're not siblings <laughs> but this is what's important okay so just here's a free one that um, in, <laughs> in this passage you know uh, women are created you know man is male is created first and then female is created out of male but in the passage i just read our our salient identity in christ is siblings not the marriage model and so this is one of the false logic that's being applied is that somehow uh, the relationship in the home is the salient identity that overrides anything that happens in the church. Yeah, and we don't see that in any of these other relationships. I mean, if you have an employer and an employee coming into the church, you can make that employee an elder. And you just say, okay, employer, you know, here, this is the church. This isn't, this isn't the, the factory or whatever. And here right. we have a different relationship and, and we're going to deal with it. And no one seems to be overly fussed about a son uh, being a pastor in a church in which his father attends. Mm. Uh, only in this relationship does all of a sudden everyone think that, oh my goodness, now we have a Houston, we have a problem. And why do we have a problem? Mm. You don't have a problem in any other area. Why here? And yes. it makes you realize it's really about other things. And this is just a justification that's being built around a passage that really doesn't work either in the passage or um, in the inconsistency in with how um, the issues are dealt with in scripture. Yeah. I wonder if I could ask just one summational question about First Timothy 2. So we talked earlier about how um, sometimes we like to pull meaning out of specifically this passage to mean something for the church mm -hmm. now. Um, most of the time that means women should be silent and sub in subjugation to men. I wonder if you could very briefly and off the cuff, because I didn't prepare you for this one either. I wonder if you could just speak very briefly in summation what you think First um, Timothy has to say to the church now in light of its immediate content. First Timothy 2 and particularly um, 9 through 15 or so. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, well, for women, I think there are two things that should be said. Number one is that we are supposed to learn. The command in the passage, the imperative is in the passage is that a woman must learn. Right. I think to the extent that we have been um, encouraged to focus on non-essentials, like cleaning toilets or something like that's the, big, the, the, the highest calling we can get is to have a... Um, uh, a well-organized house and on and on and on that this is a great calling and it's like you know in the scheme of things this is this this is going to blow away but the word of god remains forever and that women are called to invest themselves in wisdom and in seeking wisdom and in fearing god and um, that they should not be blown off track by some kind of argument that some other calling is much higher for them 
it, 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 it's the same calling and it's the same thing. Study to show yourself approved to God. And you know, a, a work person that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now that was given to Timothy as a leader, but most of us take it to heart. And the thing is that women can take that passage to heart and that's the calling. The other thing that I would like to suggest is something that's really, really important. And that is that we have a lot of theology about how God, how God has reversed the fall through Jesus Christ and how God is rolling back the fall. And most of the time we're focusing on the effects of the fall on Adam. And so I am suggesting that uh, we understand when Paul set, talks about childbirth, that that's, he's still working on the narrative. He's, he's just talked about, and, and, and this is relevant, all this hangs together as being talking about the same thing, as that we go through the creation passage, then we go through the fall, and now he's getting to the thing he really wants to address. I mean, he could be, he could be tweaking, correcting the myths that are going around, but why are the myths going around? Because there's an issue with childbirth. And what's the issue with childbirth? Well, primarily that, that women die hmm. in huge numbers right. for modern yeah. medicine. It's still the biggest challenge. And it's very clear that, our more, uh, in, that maternal mortality is the result of the fall. And it's also clear that in women's religion, such as anything, any effects that Artemis would be having to cause syncretism in the women's culture, is going to revolve a lot around getting pregnant and then not dying. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of women's uh, magical practices and everything are, through the centuries, revolve around those two things. Mostly, uh, women are interested in not having 20 children like Susanna Wesley related, rather not. You know, because eventually, if you don't die, if your number doesn't come up, your bottom falls out. And, you know, it's yes. not a comfortable <laughs> existence, right? Right, Being right. pregnant or nursing uh, and or nursing the whole time is, is not a comfortable existence. And so it's not just getting pregnant, not being barren, but then once you do get on a roll, how do I stop this from uh, dominating or killing me? And yes. this is the effects of the fall on every woman. If Paul's not talking about that, I mean, actually the position is that the, the Bible says nothing about rolling back the fall for women. It says nothing about addressing these horrible, these horrendous consequences. And so to me, the fact that here, Paul takes time to address what I would call the core issues and the core concern for women and for the heart of women and the religion of women, is tremendously important and how sad that it's been missed. And again, if I were a betting person, I would put my money on, this is about maternal mortality. This is about the effects of the fall on women. It's completely constrained to be read that way. I mean, you got the creation, you got the fall, you got the consequences right there. But, but, but that's where all the male scholars go, oh no, I don't think this is addressing childbirth. I think this <laughs> that even though we believe in justification by faith, that women are justified by childbirth, but we believe in justification by faith. Um, there's no, don't look at the man in the curtain. Yeah. There's no contradiction here. Um, but <laughs> right? And this is the most oh, God, plausible yeah. explanation for this. 
And I'm like, not for me. <laughs> it's oh, never been plausible. Never. This is, this is so, this is so great because I, I know, I know for me, it's almost, it's like Chesterton's yachtsman who leaves the Island and then ends up back on the exact same Island, but not knowing that it was the same Island and seeing it differently for the first time. Mm -hmm. This passage has been so fixated on women in teaching, women in teaching, women in teaching that we miss the, the point that, that this is talking about what is actually so essential to womanhood, particularly um, throughout the many, many uh, centuries where modern medicine was not giving us an advantage. And and going back to the fall, the, the health risk, childbirth, fertility, um, all of these, all of these risks and, uh, and how central that is. We just sort of look at the, the birth part of that and we're like, oh yeah, that's weird, isn't it? And Paul says a strange thing there. Oh wait, back to, back to talking about why women shouldn't teach and, and get so fixated on that, that we miss this now, as you explain it, it feels so self-evident <laughs> that of course this would be such a huge deal for women and for, and for women particularly, and for Paul connecting it to the fall Oh gosh, that's just, uh, I'm just, I'm so refreshed by this. I hope our listeners are having some of these like these mind blowing moments right now um, as, as this is being just re just, just laid out for them. So. And you understand that, that, that biblical scholarship has been dominated by male interpreters and they really don't think it's about women. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and let's, yeah, what let's just, let's about. just yeah. put that out there because that's, that's something we're, we have to just this keep really recognizing. About women. This is about the doctrine of justification. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Being contradicted oh, and yet not, you know, it's just, yes, this is doctrine, this is, Paul's not really interested in women dying or, or in the, in the kinds of measures uh, that they would take in prayer and religion to deal with yeah. that oh, or how yeah. Paul thought that women mm. were at risk in Ephesus. Yeah, and that's the thing. And that's one of the things they say. He goes, women aren't saved. You know, and, and, there, and if you read the passage where it says there's one of these words that's never right, but the woman will be saved through childbearing if she devotes herself to godliness. I'm going to, um, I always change these words around. So I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to this verse and we'll, uh, this uh, translation. A woman will be saved through childbearing if they, who are they? Well, I was always taught to say uh, it, 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 it's, that's an anaphoric reference uh, referred to in the, the passage. Oh, um, the man and the woman, the husband and wife, are they? That's Those are the closest reference that make any sense. If the husband and wife continue in faith, love, and holiness. Oh, and this says and propriety. No, it's not propriety. It's self-control. Self yeah, we always want women. If it's about women, it says, you know, we just want them behaving well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just be genteel and quiet and well-mannered. This is self-control. And so if it's addressed to the husband and wife, and it's talking about uh, dealing with the effects of childbirth, it's saying we need a little self-control here to help women survive. Oh, oh. about that. And a little love so that you pay for a doctor or you give her proper nutrition and you stop beating her while she's pregnant. So she miscarries and dies. Or the, the, the biggest thing, we need faith. And then people say, oh, it cannot mean that because women did die in childbirth. When you're assuming they met the requirements and her husband did, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, apart yeah. from that, in James, it also says to call the elders of the church to anoint the sick person and they'll be saved. And you can say the same thing. But people who are sick die. 
often. <laughs> Eventually they did, you know? Yes, yes. No one gets out of here alive on this one for sure. Yeah. And so, and so number one, I actually think that Paul is giving a very good advice to help women survive. Because if yeah. you're the women where maternal mortality uh, uh, rate is the highest, if the, if the husbands treated their wives according to these principles, the mortality, uh, the maternal mortality rate would be greatly decreased. Right. And so this really does help. And then of course, faith is like, okay, let's, let's pray about this and that. And, and we believe God answers prayer and then back up and say, well, sometimes they still die and say, yeah, but you know what he saved them from? He saved them from dying at a point when they were disobeying God by turning to a syncret by turning to a goddess to see them yeah. through. And how bad is that in your in in the time of crisis in the time of death uh, that that you would abandon God and turn to Artemis? Worst mm. thing ever. Mm. So. You know, Paul, he said, I'm confident that Paul's going to save me, that, that God's going to save me from the lions, but he didn't save them from, from him from the ax. And so, mm. but he thought that was acceptable loss mm. because he died mm. after living a life of faith. He says, basically, I'm being, in Second Timothy, I'm being poured out now like a, like a drink offering on the altar. And this is, yeah. this is good. And so he wants women to die, to live, to live and die well in the faith. And this is, in that sense, yes, uh, what oh. he's telling them to do is saving them from a crisis that, that is really quite dangerous, spiritually and physically. Mm. I, this is this has just been so helpful and <clears throat> I think is going to be just massive for our listeners. So I just I want to to sort of land the plane on one more passage that is often weaponized against women, often addressed and sort of moving from some of the some of the exploitation and dangers that you just referenced into thinking about uh, sexual exploitation and how that plays into 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16, where it's talking about, uh, for our listeners sake, the veiling in church and women's heads must be covered long hair glory and men's heads uncovered short hair glory but often this is this is used and again there's creation story references in there but it seems like on a cursory reading it's often used to think of like men in a hierarchical sense like this is this is one of those key passages where it almost seems like oh yeah it looks like women might be second class citizens maybe there's different rules for them men are a bit more free and okay and women are need need a little bit more handling for our listeners that are worried about this passage and wondering like well how do i what do I do with that? What do I do with this sort of ranking system that's happening? Can you just give us a few nuggets from your research that would be helpful to our listeners? So it's assumed with 1 Corinthians 11 that male authority is the topic, but it, it has to have for that, for male authority to be the topic, it has to be a slam dunk that the veil means authority of men over women. It has to. If right. you just actually say, you take that out and say, the veil doesn't mean authority, then the topic's not male authority. And, and here's the kicker, is that there's only one place that authority is explicitly mentioned in the passage. I bet you, you know where that is. Hmm. It's 1 Corinthians 11.10, and that's where it says that a woman ought to have authority over her head. A woman right. ought to have authority over her head. That's the only mention of authority in the passage. When you read it in the Greek, it would, should mean one thing. Now, in all the passages where it's the male is the subject 
and it says uh, a male or an angel, a man or an angel um, has authority or ought to have authority, that they are the ones who have authority. But now you have a woman has authority. And all of a sudden, now we've got to bring in an, a, a, some different hermeneutical rules. With men, clearly the men have authority. With women, oh, let's step back and look at this and think about it. <laughs> it's so interesting because I'm looking at the NRSV right now. And it in verse 10, it says, for this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. But then it has like a little, um, a little letter. So you look at the bottom for a footnote and it says, the Greek lacks a symbol of, <laughs> so we've included a symbol of authority, but we've included it. But the thing is, here, here's the thing that I realized as I was thinking about this issue, is that if you put a symbol of authority, if you have a man ought to have a symbol of authority over his head, you get what? A crown or a pope's hat. Something that bestows and symbolizes that authority. That's right. It yeah. symbolizes mm -hmm. your status and your rank. Right. That if mm -hmm. a man's wearing something on his head that's a symbol of authority, it, it, it is something that indicates that he has a rank. So again, we're, we're actually doing these different hermeneutical moves around it. So, okay, now it's a symbol of authority. Oh, but, but you know, of course, it didn't happen just this way. They'd already decided that the veil means authority. Well, Chris Austin said so, so. And, <laughs> there he is again. <laughs> and he said this. This is all from Chris Austin. Mm -hmm, and yeah. so he said, okay, it's a symbol of authority. And say, oh, not her authority. It's a symbol of male authority that's over her head. So what it really means, it really means a woman ought to have a, a signal of subjugation, a symbol mm. of subjugation. It, it should mean, say that in order for it to mean that. But it says, right. okay, but it's a symbol of authority and what's on her head, but a veil. And a veil means man's authority. Therefore, this passage, oh, it doesn't mean a woman ought to have authority. It means that she ought to be subject to, to men and never have any authority whatsoever in any case. And actually, that's what's really wild about it is when you you can actually go through scripture and look at passages where you see indications of a woman's authority and how they play it down. You know, how, the, mm -hmm. how a word that, that connotes a position like apostle or deacon or, um, you know, that she is the tyrant over her house. <laughs> right, right. All become subject subject words you know, and, all of a sudden all, you know, now we have to finesse them yeah, yeah. You, you have to finesse them because now now we're talking women and you know if these words were used for men they would be authority words they're used for women and somehow they get translated into in such a way that they subjugate women and mm. you don't have any indication that women ever have any authority in anything and I'll tell you something else is that women were parents and they were masters in those passages in those household codes that those household codes were, were, were supposed to be applicable to women. But you see this move said, okay, so you've got the father and you've got the, um, you, you've got the husband, you've got the father and you've got the male slaveholder. No, you don't. You've got the husband, you've got the parents and you've got the masters and lots of women were masters of slaves and had authority over them. Um, yeah. And, and so I, and I don't know how they, they're thinking that must've been dealt with uh, because their, their little understanding of authority simply breaks down when you have this Greco-Roman household. Mm. But, okay. So that's, that's at least a start to say the veil does not mean authority. 
uh, well, they did this, these exegetical moves where the hermeneutics for men are completely different than the hermeneutics mm. for women. Then they right. do it's come to this slate of hand and in exegetical fallacies, um, logical fallacies. And then when we arrive at this passage now means that women are under authority and they're subjected. And that's what the passage is about. Woo. You know, <laughs> I, I, well, uh, I wonder, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the passage and I, I suspect, and perhaps it's been taught to me this way, that um, it's because of, it's often assumed that it's male authority because of the verses that precede them. Like, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And um, for this reason, or sorry, neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of right. man. So I wonder how you... Um, explain and explore that directly before the veiling. Yeah, I thought we were going to get into the headship passage, which is really maybe the start of why people think this is yeah. an authority relationship. But mm -hmm. what, what you're talking about there, it, that's really interesting. And, and I think, yes, I think the way the preceding material before verse 10 is read is all pejoratively. Um, yeah. But does it necessitate a pejorative reading? Does it necessitate? Because you're sitting there, because men are reading it and they're going, yeah, we're first. Yeah, for our sake. And um, and then it says a woman ought to have authority. You go, no, wait. <laughs> Not me what it means. Let's go back again and say, make this consistent with what the argument clearly is. And that's, you know, when males are privileged. We think that that's what we've been reading the whole thing that way. Um, and then we get to the women I'd have authority. And just for this reason, a woman I'd have authority over, your he over her head. And you say, does not follow. <laughs> and so when we're looking at this in the Greek and, and we, we're, we're saying, no, there's just no way you can play with this to say it actually says a woman ought to have authority over her head. Have I been reading the preceding text wrong? Did I get the wrong, did I make the wrong inferences about what Paul is saying? And of course, that is my argument, is that he must be saying something good about women that would support them somehow having authority. And then the other thing, and, and if you think that was, if, if you're all happy and you say, no, women don't have authority, women are subjected, then you still have a problem. Because um, he, he says, it's, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Well, let's let's pretend that it's a symbol of authority. Okay, let's just let's just read it that way. It is for this reason that a woman ought to be under authority, have a symbol of authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman's not independent of man. Okay, Houston, I have another problem. <laughs> I solved the authority <laughs> problem, but I have no idea how I've just said in every way, shape, and form that a woman is subject and inferior to me. And then you say, wait a minute, I'm not arguing that a woman should be just independent. I'm going, I never thought you were. The <laughs> 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 passage keeps not making sense the way it's yeah. been traditionally read. And so I actually have a paper that I haven't published yet that... I really need to put out there where I really get into this. And I said, okay. And, and I use critical discourse analysis to talk about the power relate and, and, and its uh, categories to compare the power relationships in the traditional interpretation versus my plausible interpretation. I don't see it's the only thing you might come up with, but you know, let's just put this out in contrast and see which matches the material more. And I described the traditional position 
of um, 1 Corinthians 11 that the veil is authority and this is about submission and subjection and here's the conclusion. And I said, this is so coherent. And they all go, yeah, it's coherent. And then I said, but what happens to the text when you assume these things? And then I go in and I say, this creates a contradiction. This creates a contradiction. This creates a contradiction. This creates a contradiction. And furthermore, we're a little bit uncomfortable. Even men are comfortable with the idea that, you know, Paul is, is suggesting that the church grab a woman and shave her head if she doesn't veil. We say, that seems a little bit, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> None of us are really excited about that. But okay, yeah, haven't, you know? haven't been to any of those prayer meetings. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, but I mean, does that sound like Paul? And of course, the way some of us read mm. Paul, you go, Paul's not going to say, yeah, grab the bitch and shave her head if she's not going to put a veil, (laughs) (laughs) which is, and I use that word, but that's the feeling you get after. Right, right. Or or let's Mm -hmm. say witch, you know, now we've got the inquisition all kind of stewing already because that's right, right. We get these. And so that's problematic as you work through the passage and you try to understand this passage with the inter- with the traditional interpretation. I mean, similarly to First uh, Timothy two, it's just incoherent, and there's just one incoherent thing after another. And if it's not incoherent, it's tremendously uncomfortable. Mm. And then I, and then I'm saying, okay, let's back up and let me explain to you that within the culture, the veil did not mean the authority of the husband. Right. It, it did not mean that at all. The veil was a practice of a culture that instilled the culture's beliefs about women and their honor and, you know, what hair, what hair was and uh, what, you know, the effects of hair and the sexuality of women. And um, we can talk about the rights and wrongs of, of veiling and controlling women's sexuality, but I think we need to set that on the back table and say, really, Paul wasn't dealing at that level, he was dealing right. with if you've got an unveiled m- woman, what message is that sending? And furthermore, you know, how is she unprotected in those circumstances? And right. and so so the veil was not did not symbolize submission to a husband, but it actually was protection and honor mm-hmm. and status for the woman. And so, in fact, some some classes of women were forbidden to veil. And so who veiled and who did not veil were equally important. That is, if you were considered um, to be sexually impure, that would be a slave or freed woman, um, or sometimes just a woman of low status, uh, you, you were not allowed to veil. You know, because it was it would be assumed that someone had sex with you other than your husband at some time, and that that's just a given. And uh, but but the the um, honorable women in the society that they veiled, and that was an issue that was status and that was protection because you couldn't sexually accost a woman who is who was veiled, but you could sexually accost and harass a woman who wasn't veiled. And so mm. this is what it meant. And here's the deal: husband's authority or the authority of officials or the legal authority could force a woman to veil or unveil. And so, like I said, the legal authority actually, um, you know, legislated that women who are not honorable did not veil because a veil was a sign of honor and it gave the wrong message. So if you're a prostitute in these cultures and you put on a veil, you know, you might be tarred and feathered or, you know, 
And so what what we actually have, our stories actually tell us um, stories about how husbands and authorities uh, told their wives or uh, a godly, honorable woman to take her veil off or they ripped it off. And that is any Muslim woman who practices veiling will tell you is like stripping you naked. And you have the cry of women through the centuries, please do not do this thing to me. Please do not dishonor me. Or as Vashti said, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, they, and they made this this big submission issue that she would not Mm -hmm. In in this case, we're talking about um, coming out of seclusion, which is a form of veiling, is that her refusing to do it was not submissive, not staying in seclusion should have been submissive. No, because she was ordered out. So really, it's not that the veil is a sign of a woman of a man's authority, men want to uh, tell you what to do and control your sexuality and your veiling, whether you're veiled or not, they want to maintain control. Right. Mm. So I wonder, just as kind of like a final question about this, so what what would you suggest that Paul is saying is, uh, similar to the question about First Timothy 2, what would you suggest that this may offer to us as the church, either um, currently or historically, about either men and women or about the honor and glory of God? Well, is that when we, when we um, head into worship in, in the church, and um, as we relate to each other, that I would say the way the way we dress, um, and where where this is happening, space and and the symbols of our culture send messages. Mm. And so he he's actually saying, you know, when a woman is unveiled, that sends one message, and a man is unveiled, it sends another message. And so you can, uh, you know that in Corinthians, he talks about uh, Moses putting on a veil, but we're unveiled. We uh, behold with unveiled faces the glory and we're changed from glory to glory. And so the actual, the unveiling and the idea of being changed from glory to glory is is tremendously powerful and potent. And that's what it is for a man, but unveil a woman and that's not what you're seeing. That's not the message you're getting. What you're getting is... Mm hot babe, I'm available. She's available. So am I, yeah. you know? And so, uh, you know, so you got to, he's saying, you know, if a woman gets up in prophecies and prophecy size or praise, notice this is a church service and he has women uh, speaking and prophesying, which is the yes. most authority. Not to be overlooked. <laughs> you want to know how authoritative prophecy is, just read 1 Corinthians 14. Mm-hmm. And you will see that he thinks prophecy is the thing that's authoritative. And so you can have a woman, if a woman prophesies, she could potentially drive a guy to his knees and have him crying and begging. And that, yeah. and, so, yeah. so, and that's okay. That's a good thing. And yeah. so, it's funny, right? And that, yes. That, it's uh, just that often overlooked detail. <laughs> she's prophesying. That's the most best gift, highest gift, most authoritative gift. And he talks all about it later, but whether she's prophesying, which is the most authoritative thing she can do, or she's praying, she should cover her head. And, and that's because it's inconceivable. Like, should I take my shirt off when I get up there and preach? You know, this is about the impact of it. Like I said, taking off your veils, like stripping naked. And so he's saying, yeah, I don't care who's, what their social status is all women should have this veiling. So the wrong message is not being sent. And so I think that when we are in worship, um, we should think 
about uh, what the symbols are that we're taking upon ourselves and we're sending them out and say, we do not want to interfere with the goal of worship or the goal of prophecy or the goal of prayer, which is to honor God. We don't want to compete with his glory. And, and he's actually giving a really nice evaluation of women. Basically, that women with their hair are so spectacular that, that, that there's some competition here. <laughs> Which you actually read, you know, it's like, wow, this is a glory. I always was saying, okay, I don't get it. One of the inconsistencies is if this is my glory, I go, the glory of a man is a woman and the glory of a woman is her hair. First of all, that seemed insulting. <laughs> <laughs> and then second, in this argument, why am I covering it up? But actually, when you right. look at the, what, when you actually look into Bill and you go, I get it. I get it. And, and if, if I want to take off my veil, you know, when I get up and pray in prophecy, it should not be about me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and if, and if, and if I don't want to get up there like that, uh, Paul says, every woman should be allowed to veil and have the status of honor. Every woman is a new creature in Christ. You are all honorable and you all have the yeah. same status in Christ. So every woman should have a veil, a veil and every woman should have that protection against the men who would treat her differently. And we've certainly seen how women are at risk even in the church and how much mm. they would be at risk yeah. in this kind of situation where an unveiled head is sending a signal out. Not, not just someone said it's like she's not wearing an engagement ring. Oh no, <laughs> this is feel free to sexually accost me. Right. I, I, um, right. I, I have no protector. Yeah. Wow. And what a great liberator for women of um, varying histories or economic statuses at the time, too. I love that observation as well. Thank you so much. Oh, well, and, and Cindy, we, we've loved this. We've absolutely loved this. I mean, like I could, we, we both probably have 20 more questions we could ask, but we have already taken up so much of your time. Thank you so much. And we um, will, we're just going to have to have you back on the podcast you, because there's so much more to talk about, but you have given us and given our listeners um, so much today. Uh, this, this, this food for thought, your, your scholarship and your work, helping us navigate these passages um, and, and furthering the gospel and not bumping into these obstacles where we're, we're fighting for power or control. Um, this is, this is just, this is just beautiful and wonderful. Um, and we just, we just appreciate you so much. Just, just bringing your expertise here with us today. Well, it was, it was my pleasure. And I think it's pretty clear that I'm, I could talk all day and, and all night. and in <laughs> I love it. We're, we're there. We're there for sure. Yeah, but we, so I so uh, appreciate, thank you for having me. Um, I'm honored and, um, and appreciative to have this chance to talk with you. I equally enjoyed it. I had a good time. Yes. <laughs> so good. I just hope I didn't, uh, whatever's inappropriate that God will blow away and <laughs> Whatever honors him <laughs> will stay. <laughs> In Amen. Indeed. Wow. Yes. Wow. I love so her. we got it. We got through part two. And oh my goodness, listeners, I imagine your brains are full. Mine is full. It's drinking out of a fire hose. She was so generous with her time. And we were so surprised and grateful at just how much she um, was willing to give and discuss. And I know that even though I've read her book, I was... Um, reintroduced to some ideas um, that maybe I had missed the first time that were so helpful and just a a really faithful way forward for 
um, us as individuals for our interpretations congregationally and also for the church Catholic. Absolutely. And listeners, if you, this is, this is just a taste, of course, we, we keep letting you guys know that if you really want to get the full realm, the full depth of the scholarship, go and pick up a copy of Paul and Gender by Dr. Cynthia Westfall. Um, you won't regret it. And even if it's a little bit in the stratosphere for you, there's going to be stuff in there that you'll be able to reference. If you're ever in conversations with folks that went to seminary or learned Greek and Hebrew, and you want to be able to um, provide uh, a different view of, of what you're being, you're being told. Um, so definitely go pick that up. Yeah. And most of all, thank you for joining us today. Be sure to go back and listen to part one if you haven't already, or if you forgot it, or if you just need to do this all a second time. I know I'll be returning to these conversations multiple times. Um, but if you enjoy the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use. We really appreciate you connecting us to other listeners and would love your feedback. Also, if you really love the podcast, you should join our Patreon account. We're hilarious and occasionally coherent. Um, And it is a glorious time over on our Patreon where we record um, commentaries on episodes that are coming out, related content, and sometimes just chaotic discussions between me and Aaron Monez. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host, the Reverend Aaron Monez, and our fabulous producer, Bailey Dingley, where mutuality matters. Thanks for listening.